This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. It's Meredith Carey, and you're listening to Women Who Travel, a podcast from Connie Nast Traveler. A few weeks ago, my co-host Lolly and I flew over to Los Angeles to meet a bunch of you at our third live taping of the podcast at the Ace Hotel in downtown LA. We chatted with Kelly Sodden, partner and chief brand officer at Ace Hotel Group and Atelier Ace, about how the Ace's creative design launched a new generation of boutique hotels and how they keep innovating year after year. Because it was live, the audio isn't our best, but the conversation was so great we just had to share it. If you want to come to a meetup or live podcast, keep an eye out in the Facebook group, linked in the show notes, or womenwhotravel.com. I'll let Lolly take it from here. Well, hi, everyone. Thanks for coming along to our third live episode of Women Who Travel. We are so excited to be here in LA. And we are lucky enough to be joined today by Kelly Sordin, who is responsible for making the hotel we're sitting in look quite as cool as it is. She is the partner and chief brand officer of the Ace Hotel Group and Atelier Ace. And she oversees all of the brand's in-house creative, from the interiors to the architecture to the graphic design. And her next project is the upcoming Ace Hotel in Kyoto. And the 20th anniversary of Ace is just around the corner, so it felt like the right time to grill you on a few things. So I'm ready. (laughs) Um, The first thing I think that we wanted to ask is, you know, the Ace has such a specific aesthetic. When you walk into an Ace Hotel, you know exactly where you are. How would you define that? So, um, you know, I think what we've embraced over the years is because all of our hotels feel really localized, you know, when we're looking at it from a design perspective, you know, we walk into these buildings and we look at what's, what, what's existing, what is there, what can we reference, um, what time period was it built? And, and then we, you know, take a step outside the doors and then we go and say, what's happening in the neighborhood and, and, you know, we let that sort of start to inform us as well, um, where we're going to take things from a, uh, narrative, which eventually leads to design and, and, you know, other aspects of the project. Um, and then, you know, we look at what's happening in a city. So from a cultural perspective, what things, you know, historically happened, were there, you know, characters that we want to sort of embrace and celebrate, um, like in our New York hotel, um, there's this incredible artist that actually used to live in our building um, back when it was, um, you know, turn of the century and uh, the neighborhood had, you know, Tin Pan Alley with musicians and um, writers that all lived in that neighborhood. And so, you know, we really start to to write our narrative based on some of that stuff and then also based on people that are currently in the city and, and that are doing interesting and compelling stuff that we really feel 
um, are really driving the creative conversation in that neighborhood and that, that community. And so this building has a pretty cool story behind it. Yes, it does. Well, first of all, when we saw this property, um, we saw the theater first. So right next door, it's actually connected to this building, is uh, the original United Artists Theater. So it was built in 1927 by Mary Pickford and Charlie Chaplin, Douglas Fairbanks, and D.W. Griffith. And United Artists, for those that, that don't know, was founded because at the time, the artists felt like, you know, the studios are the ones that are making all the money and, you know, we're the reason that people are coming. It's our name and lights and we're, you know, Charlie Chaplin and Mary Pickford were the real drivers. And so they founded United Artists, which decided, they decided that they were going to actually produce their own films. And so um, this was their first location. They, they realized when they decided to, to produce their own films that they actually have nowhere to show those films. And so they designed the theater that's attached to this building. And then um, this building went up as well, which was office space at the time. And so, um, you know, we, as we got into design, we really tapped into that history and we really embraced, you know, um, Mary Pickford as a female that I think is not celebrated as much as she should be. I think she really was at a very young age, um, a force to be reckoned with in, you know, in the studio, in the, the film industry. And, um, and so we embraced a lot of that story of the theater and of United Artists as like artists taking back their art and actually being the ones that uh, make the money out of it. And then, you know, we layered on and, and we do that with all of our projects. We sort of, you know, what was the history of a space and how can we celebrate that and then also, you know, adapt it and uh, layer in what's happening today. This job has so much to do with being obsessed with how hotels work and how they're created. Did you always have an interest in hotels or did that just kind of like fall into your lap? I mean, I've always loved hotels because you know, you're traveling, you're in a different space. And I think hotels are, you know, a window into a new community and into a new culture. And I think when I was younger, I would travel mostly domestically with my family. But right out of college, my first position was actually, uh, we we're throwing parties and uh, concerts around the U.S. And so we were on the road, you know, we would do an event at one city and wrap up and literally go straight to the next one. So crossing the U.S. and up and down the coast and really getting to see the hotels in different cities and sort of how that was a reflection of the uh, environment and, uh, and the culture around it was really something that excited me. And then, you know, my next role um, was working with Alex, one of the co-founders of ACE, and running an uh, experiential marketing agency we would do stuff internationally. So this is, you know, early 2000s, kind of before pop-up shops were like a normal thing. <laughs> um, and we were doing events all around, uh, all around the globe. And so, you know, traveling a lot and living in hotels. So really out of college, I was spending more time in hotels than I actually was at home. And so, you know, the evolution to, you know, moving to ACE after Never Stop, the marketing agency, the experiential marketing agency was sort of just a natural you know, like I, I know them inside and out and I've spent, you know, many, many days inside of hotels. In those early 2000s, when you sort of first joined ACE, how would you describe the hotel landscape then? Um, it's quite different from now. Definitely. There were some people that were doing, you know, interesting stuff, but um, I don't think that hotels at that time were really trying to be a cultural hub. There were some people that were doing it, but I think for the most part, hotels were often, you know, People just looked at it like the restaurant is, 
you know, place for the hotel guests to come and eat and the public spaces are a place for the hotel guests to come and, you know, have meetings or have a cocktail and relax. And I think coming from an event background and, you know, not going up through the traditional routes that, uh, you know, a lot of people in the, the industry have gone through, we kind of stepped into it, you know, with naive eyes in some ways. And, and I think we had ideas and opportunities and things that people thought we were crazy or would have thought had, you know, um, had we had more people that actually came from, you know, hotel backgrounds. So yeah, at the time it was really, there were, like I said, a few people that were doing things, but for the most part, I don't think people had really grasped the idea of like how to really make spaces dynamic and activate them with the community that's, you know, outside the doors and not just the guests. Do you ever feel like you're competing with yourself to create the next greatest thing? Because Ace at the beginning was known for having these lobby spaces where people would come and hang out and do their work. And that's now kind of across the board, something that we come to expect in hotels where we hope that they have them. How do you guys stay ahead of the curve? So I think the lobby example, our New York lobby had a really large communal space. And this is sort of before co-working was, you know, commonplace um, around the world. And, you know, that was sort of, we were kind of getting pigeonholed, like, oh, you guys do the co-working space and the, you know, lobby that has a large communal tables. And as we, you know, we started working on this project and we don't have a large lobby space, you know, this is a skinny building and it has, you know, constraints. And I think for us, we are constantly looking at projects as a new opportunity, something fresh, something that... We, we don't apply the same methods and layouts and design and things that were successful in the past to stuff in the future, which, you know, is scary. You're, you're, you know, every time we open a new project at times, we're like, we hope everyone likes it and loves it as much as we do. But it's also exciting and it's refreshing. And I think as a, a creative company, you know, a lot of our people that are at our corporate office that we call the atelier, which is um, means studio, um, the people at the atelier, are, are, a majority of them are really not from hotel backgrounds. So, you know, it's a, and even the people that are from uh, traditional hotel backgrounds are really, they're creatives and they want to contribute to, you know, new ideas and fresh ways of, uh, of doing things. And so, you know, for us, it's like every project is an opportunity to sort of evolve and change and try out some new stuff and, you know, do things that, will activate spaces in different ways that feel appropriate for the places that we're in. So, you know, we kind of, we don't have a set formula. Are there any design features in the many hotels that you guys have that you feel like people miss that you wish they noticed? Um, not, it's not things that I, I, I actually, I feel like people see as much as they want to. And so, um, or, or see as, uh, see how considered and how deep that we go with stuff, um, as they want to, I think, we approach design and like every little thing is really considered from the language that we use, uh, which, you know, again, a lot of people have adopted this today. And so it just seems commonplace, but back in the day, you know, we were really everything from what the main comment was to, you know, the, uh, any ways that we could to, you know, in New York, there was a, there's a stairwell that says, you know, we opened basically when the markets crashed in 2009. So everyone was, really in shock and scared and, and, you know, still wondering what was going to happen. And, and, you know, we saw the stairs as an opportunity to sort of leave like a message that guests coming up, it would see, and it says, everything's going to be all right inlaid in brass and in marble. So I feel like if they have an eye that 
tends to notice the real finer details. I think people will, will see that. So there's not really anything that I, I'm like, I wish they would notice this. Because <laughs> I feel like the, the right people figure it out and see it and, uh, and comment on that, which makes it feel special. That everything will be all right motto feels like it's still yeah, relevant, relevant today. Maybe more? <laughs> I don't know. Yes, <laughs> definitely agree. Um, I was staying in a hotel recently where the bathroom basically just didn't have a mirror. And there was nowhere for me to put my toiletries and my makeup bag and all the things that I needed and wanted. Yeah. Um, and I also had a conversation recently where someone said that women work better in natural light. And I was wondering when you design these spaces, how much you think about the ways all genders interact in the spaces and from your own experience in staying in hotels, if there's stuff you thought like, God, I wish whatever man was designing the space thought of this. And that happens how, sometimes. How much that inform, informs your designs. Yeah. Um, you know, I, we don't design with a gender in mind. We really, you know, I think being a female and a lot of times we're working with um, female or women-led interior design firms. So, you know, Roman Williams, um, our designer that we worked with on our New York property, they, you know, Robin Standerfeld is, uh, you know, she and her husband are the principals there. Um, and we worked with Commune on our Palm Springs in LA hotel. Um, and that was one of the partners is Pamela Shamshiri, who we, we just opened a new project with in New Orleans, um, this past week. And so, you know, we have female led design members and I think it's just, we naturally think about that stuff, but we're, it's, we're not always like, we'll comment like, I hate this in a hotel room or I hate this in a public space or, you know, people always forget this, but we don't design with it. And, and which means that, you know, sometimes the lighting we focus more on how it looks than like, oh yeah, it's really tough to do your makeup in that. <laughs> We've made those mistakes as well. <laughs> do you have any hotel pet peeves now when you travel after all that time of staying in hotels? <laughs> um, you know, I think I would rather stay at a place. I, I want places to feel authentic. And I, I think when people are trying too hard or they're trying to be something that they're not, and you can sense that. Um, I've stayed in you know a few hotels around the world that you know you just feel like, the people that designed it or that are running it, it's not really them that they just went and copied someone else's concept. And um, so that annoys me because I would rather stay at a place that is simple and I don't want to say bland, but like, you know, might not have, it might not try to be like pushing the cultural, you know, um, dial, but is honest and they're, you know, we're a business hotel or whatever. Um, but I, I think that the things that annoy me are just like, you know, be who you are and be honest and be, um, and let that shine through. And there's, you know, a market for that out in this industry. I'm curious. So you were just talking about the New Orleans property, but the sister city, which just opened in New York is the other kind of like ace adjacent, uh, hotel that you guys have opened. How did the idea of that come about? Because it's in the same vein as ace, but different. different. Yeah. So Sister City is a new hotel that we opened up in New York. It's a, uh, we just opened up this month. So it's connected to Freeman's Alley, which is uh, a little alley in the Lower East Side that has had, you know, a great restaurant there for 13, 14 years now, I think, that really was back before that neighborhood had really changed a lot. But the project came to us. Um, we had a partner that 
approached us about about doing an ace actually they wanted to do an, an ace in the lower east side and we you know we knew the lower east side we had spent a lot of time down there um both alex and i one of the partners um were in london at the time working on that property and you know designing it and living in the hotel and um were you know in the thick of that and they approached us and as we you know we immediately said yes which is something that you know for better or for worse, we always do. Um, we, t we tend to say yes before we actually have a plan and know what we're doing, like, you know, running a 1600 person seated theater next door. <laughs> but, you know, we are, we're of the mindset that like, we're hardworking, creative, intelligent people, we can figure it out. And, um, and if we can't, then we can always bring in someone who, who knows that business better to help us. And, you know, the opportunity presented itself for this building and it felt incredible, it felt like, perfect neighborhood, somewhere we were excited about, we were really familiar with and wanted to do something, but it didn't feel like an ace. And so, you know, in our typical fashion, we're like, okay, let's say yes, and then we'll figure out what it is. And so, you know, we decided, let's start a new concept. Let's do a different brand. And, um, and so we started putting together, you know, concept and names and all of that um, really organically. It was really just through, we said yes, and now we have to figure it out. <laughs> I feel like I do that all the time. <laughs> Just not on <laughs> things quite it's the as way to do it. it's, yeah. <laughs> Keeps things interesting. But, you know, I think that it's when you're uncomfortable and you're pushing yourself that that's really when you're going to grow and when you expand yourself creatively. And, um, and I think you get more comfortable in your shoes as you take more and more of those, of those risks. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? I'm Nate Hedgie, the host of Outside In, an award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio. We explore the fun, dangerous, oftentimes uncomfortable questions about the natural world. Like, what happens when climate change comes knocking at your door? Unfortunately, when you find out things that you don't want to hear, the question is how you swallow that. Or what happens to our bodies when we die? All of the germs and bacteria and everything is saying, okay, baby, we got to get rid of this person. <laughs> Outside In isn't just a show for through hikers and conservationists. It's a podcast for anyone who's ready to embrace their curiosity about the natural world and have fun doing it. He left us. He left us. He left us. <laughs> but that's not what, what I'm going to do. <laughs> Listen every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to level up? For me, it's my hiking boots, which have gotten me over some pretty tough terrain. And I'm not talking about my morning commute on the New York City subway. They've pushed me to go to far-off places like trekking in the remote mountains in Patagonia, wildlife spotting amid the thick rainforest of the Amazon, and climbing through canyons in the Utah desert. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. There's an available panorama glass roof, 33-inch all-terrain tires, and multi-terrain select driving modes. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior means that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, 
and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs, Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. And I am curious, moving like very far away from New York, how the Kyoto space has also developed and changed over time and how much you've had to do with it and been traveling over there. So Japan has always been a place that we were early on wanted to get into. So Alex, again, he had done a lot of business in Japan over the years and um, opened our Portland property. And then he's like, and then we're going to go to Paris and we're going to go to Tokyo. And we're like, okay, <laughs> sure. We had Seattle and Portland. And I guess, you know, before we have New York and some of these other big cities, I guess we're going to go uh, internationally. But it took us a while to get in. So it's, you know, Japan was a uh, property that we really were spending a lot of time. You know, it's from a cultural perspective, you really need to be introduced to people and it's about relationships and it's really, it's not a place that you, you know, walk in and, um, you know, quickly find a partner and a developer in a building. It, it takes a lot of, um, a lot of energy and attention. And I think that, you know, we started working on it a long time ago. And so we were traveling to Kyoto and Tokyo and all around Japan, just kind of meeting people and also, you know, seeing, seeing that country. And, um, because it, we're all obsessed with, with it on many different levels. And so we spent a lot of time traveling, um, you know, whether it's Naoshima, the art island, or uh, Kyoto, or Tokyo. It's really uh, a place that it's very foreign. There's a lot of things that are done very differently, but it's a place that we've always sort of been obsessed with and, and wanted to get into. And Kyoto opportunity presented itself. And, you know, for us, it was, you know, say yes say yes to this. It's uh, the cultural capital of Japan. And, you know, it was an opportunity to really dive deep into, into the culture of Kyoto. And so you've talked so much about, you know, conveying that sense of the place and connecting to the community when you open a new property. Japan is magical and you can't help but be completely enthralled by it when you're there, but it's so different from here. How did you figure out a way to convey the culture of Japan and the culture of Kyoto in this new place. Yeah. So, you know, the building that we're working on has, uh, one is, part of it is a historic building. So we started with a portion of it that was actually an important uh, architectural space uh, in Kyoto. So we started there. And then we partnered with, um, you know, this world-renowned architect, Kango Kuma. We had been, he's friends of, uh, a friend of ours and, he had kind of been, you know, he knew we wanted to be in Japan. He loved Ace. So he would sort of run around and be like, what about this space or this? And, you know, like not for an architect, like he didn't really ever understand. Like how 21st they, century relationship. Of yeah. like, would you like this building? Yeah. How about exactly. this one? Over WhatsApp. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, when we started working on the project, we're like, we have to work with him. Um, he's actually designing the Olympic Stadium at the same time that he was working, that he's working on our project. So it was kind of, knowing that Japan is a different place, but we're also a, a Western company going into Japan. So we want to be, we want to be ourselves, but we want to celebrate Japan in a way that's authentic. That isn't like our interpretation of what is, you know, what is Japanese influence. And then we decided to work with a design firm from the state. So it's sort of, you know, East meets West, you know, we have partners that are telling us what is, you know, culturally correct and, we're also coming as Westerners that, you know, at times know how to push their boundaries as well. And 
and really create something that is um, very dynamic and you know it's sort of a push and pull of both cultures but it's also a celebration of bo- both cultures in a lot of ways. So anyone who's listened to this podcast before knows how I went to Japan once and I'm now obsessed. <laughs> it's amazing. What were some of your favorite experiences when you were there? Um, yeah, first of all, everything is like a ceremony. Everything is so considered. It's, it, you know, their culture is, um, nothing is rushed. And, you know, even down to a receipt is, you know, carefully folded and put in an envelope on a tray and then slid across to you. It's, it's everything ceremonial and it's beautiful. And that, um, a, you know, appreciation for everything that, you know, we don't even pay attention to on a daily basis. Um, so, you know, going and exploring and, and really like eating at different restaurants and going and um, checking out the temples. Um, our architect actually, our landscape architect is, um, his family has one of the most famous temples. It's on like the 10 yen or whatever that is just outside of Kyoto. And so he invited us to go up and tour the temple, the Biodo temple. So that was an incredible experience to see something that is, you know, known around the world and, uh, but it's this man's home. He and his wife and his kids still live there and his brother has one of the houses and they've maintained this temple for, you know, 200 years, their family has had it. And so, you know, that was an incredible experience where you see, you know, the history of Japan and uh, a place that is beloved by, you know, uh, the Japanese and people from all over the globe come and see it. Um, and then another incredible experience was as we were working on this project, you know, people think of Kyoto and they think of geishas and we wanted to experience that, but, you know, also being considerate and, and not wanting to be like, we want to be entertained by a geisha, you know, at dinner. Um, but our partner actually, um, who's Japanese, our partner arranged for all of us to have a, a, a dinner, you know, in a beautiful restaurant right by, you know, there are these um, restaurants right on the river there in Kyoto and, and you're overlooking the river and there's, you know, a geisha and then the woman who watches the geisha and, you know, is there to keep an eye on her. And so, you know, the geishas were, she was entertaining and dancing for us. And then afterwards they, you typically play games with them. And so really getting to experience that firsthand and not in like a sort of Disney-esque way, you know, really something that, that is authentic. And she is a working geisha. I met one geisha in Kyoto, and she was 19, and she'd never owned a phone. Oh, wow. She seemed really happy. (laughs) (laughs) I probably would be, too. Yeah, I was like, huh. Um, You have recently probably slowed down travel a little bit. (laughs) Yes. um, Because you just had an adorable son whose carrier I saw, like, it was earlier, (laughs) seven weeks ago. Yes. And so I'm curious... Hush falls over the crowd. Um, We're very excited to have her here on maternity leave. Um, How kind of you approached the way you want to influence your son's travels going forward because he's obviously very young and if you've traveled with him at all um I haven't yet uh we're still I mean we've gone we've driven places but haven't flown anywhere yet we will soon but I'll probably be bringing him along for a lot of things I think that the places that I go are are cities that I would visit as a tourist or you know on business and and I think we're fortunate to have business in these incredible places. And, um, and so I want to bring, you know, him with me to expose him to different cultures and, and different points of view and really be able to have him see things and think that that's normal to be, you know, to be different is fantastic. It's great. It's like, we don't all want to be the same, same thing and same person. And, 
and really have him have a global perspective on things from a very young age. I don't think my travel is going to slow down. Like at, we're opening a hotel in Kyoto next year and you know, some other international cities. And so, you know, I think it's just going to be about uh, while he's young and, and can come with, um, you know, bringing him along and really having him see, see these different places and feel that, you know, we're all humans and, you know, we might speak different languages or we might look different. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, there's something beautiful, at, you know, in all these cultures and all these places. Of all the places you've travelled in the past, is there anywhere that you were desperate to take him to with you, for him to see? I would say Berlin, because that's where my husband's from. Um, and that, that's a city I've been travelling to since, you know, early, two, I think it was 2001 was the first time I went there. And that city has changed dramatically from, you know, when I first went there and, and to now and is continuing to, to rapidly change at this point. But, I, you know, it's a city that I love and, you know, it's, it's messy, it's complicated, but that's also why it's incredible. And uh, I want him to see that and to really, um, you know, see a city that has gone through just massive, massive transitions, you know, in a very short time period, you know, from being divided by a wall and having, you know, two parts of the city that have completely different lifestyles to what it is today. I want him to, to really go and see and experience that. And also, you know, this is something I'm thinking about now as I uh, have a child and traveling, like, you know, Berlin, there's parks on every corner. It's <laughs> a city that's very family focused and, um, and, you know, has kids in mind as they design it. I'm curious because I know there are a couple of people here who came in from out of town where you think everyone in this room should visit in LA. Oh, oh, that's a. You know, really, I don't know if you guys have been um, out to the gardens. Um, they, uh, the, there's gardens that are just out uh, further east in Pasadena. Um, Huntington Gardens. Thank you, thank you to whoever said that. <laughs> I hate to say, but mommy brain sometimes. Uh, but you know, Huntington Gardens are you know really incredible place that get out and you can see, you know, a whole section that is Japanese gardens with bonsai trees and, you know, everything is really to, to Chinese gardens, to English gardens, to, um, you know, desert landscape. It's really, I think everyone should see that. I think it's a really magical place. You know, also I think going out and, uh, and, you know, going out to the beach, I think that's a, a very LA thing. So, you know, checking out the Santa Monica Pier, which is, you know, a classic and kind of crazy and weird and, you know, kind of a, a gross fun zone, but also like is a, a very classic LA. Um, yeah, I'd say kind of those two places. I was going to say, last time I was on Santa Monica Pier, I met a flat earther. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Sort of that must have been an crowd. interesting conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People are question. Attention seeker. Yeah. Well, I feel like the flat earther is where we end the episode. <laughs> um, so thank you, Kelly, so much for thank joining you. us. We always ask where people can find you on the internet, but you don't have an Instagram, do you? I do. It's do. I do, yes. You can find I you. Do. It's <laughs> private, but yes, I do. Um, is there anywhere else people should find you other than your private Instagram? I'm not on Facebook. Um, yeah, you can follow me. It's uh, my Instagram's Kelly, 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 one, 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 one. I... I was very uninspired when I thought of that. <laughs> I was like, you know, there's that cheer song that, you know, that uh, Woody sings to his girlfriend, Kelly, 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 I feel like I... why. So I was like, why not that? And, you know, just 
one. one, one. <laughs> I feel like I know what all your passwords are. <laughs> Well, you can find me at Ojeve Find me at Lale Hannah. You can find more info on the Women Who Travel Facebook group, on future meetups, live podcasts at womenwhotravel.com. Uh, so thank you guys so much for coming. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Life doesn't come with an instruction manual. But the Life Kit Podcast gets you pretty close. Whether we're helping you tackle life-altering questions or just your everyday pickles, we've got deeply human solutions to your deeply human problems. Listen now to the Life Kit Podcast from NPR. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.